Radio. Uh, what do you make of the statement made by the Iraqi government, the statement by the Iraqi government uh, yesterday that Iraq has no weapons of mass destruction and is not developing any? They're lying. Next. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Miss Lewinsky, I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. You're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. IRE, with you on your beat for 40 years. I'm Adam Ayton. This week, we're giving our host Sean Shinneman and the rest of our contributors a break while we bring you a bonus episode on a pretty interesting topic. How to Interview Liars. You just heard two of them, Donald Rumsfeld and Bill Clinton. But you don't need to work in the White House press corps to get that funny feeling you're not hearing the truth. And if you're an IRE member, you might get that feeling all the time. The question is, what do you do about it? What do you do if you think someone's lying to you? Well, over the next half hour, we're going to hear from three people who've given that a lot of thought. One of them is Don Borelli, a former FBI agent. He helped stop the 2009 plot to bomb the New York subway, and he's investigated people like Timothy McVeigh and Somali pirates and Ramzi Ben Al-Shab, one of the people who helped plan 9-11. We're also going to hear from Barry McManus. He worked for the CIA for 20 years as an interrogator and a polygrapher, and for 10 years, he was the spy agency's chief polygrapher. Uh, Before there was enhanced interrogation and waterboarding, there was Barry McManus. And that was Matt Apuzo the New York Times reporter who moderated this panel at the 2015 IRE conference in Philadelphia. When he worked for the Associated Press, Apuzo was one of the journalists who helped uncover the NYPD's domestic spying on Muslim communities. That story won a Pulitzer Prize in investigative reporting. When these three met in Philly, they talked about what liars need to do during an interview, how to get a deceiver to warm up to you, whether to get confrontational with that person, and how to do it. It's a lot more than we could fit in this podcast. So if you want to hear more, check out our episode notes where you'll find a link to listen to the entire panel. Don't have that much time? Well, we've pulled out a few key clips, including some extras that are not in this podcast, and compiled them into an audio blog post for quick reference. In a second, Matt Apuzo will start the discussion by asking the others, what do you do before you sit down with a liar? But first, the Pulitzer Prize winner gives the rest of us a little reality check. Both these guys are experts at interviewing, which frankly, I mean, reporters should be, but we're not. I mean, I, I'm not a trained interviewer. You get hired as a journalist, they hand you one of these and say, here, take a pen. This is where we stare the notebooks. The First Amendment's, you know, online, check it out, and you're a journalist now. And we think that makes us good interviewers somehow, and it doesn't. And, and my interest in this lies from, like, one of my all-time failures uh, my former colleague and I, Adam Goldman, were reporting with this very important meeting with this key source. It was going to be a big interview. It was going to be a big thing. And we had done all our homework, as you know you, know you do. And we got maybe five, ten minutes into the conversation. And it was, like, clearly lying. I mean, he was clearly lying to us. He was telling us a story that just, we knew wasn't true. 
And I didn't know. I, I didn't know. What, am I supposed to just let this guy keep lying to me? I mean, what are we doing here? And so I, I said, well, that, that, we know that's not true. I mean, but it was this and this and this. And he looked at me and he stood up and he said, well, you obviously know everything. And he left. And I sort of, Adam and I just sat there and I was like, did that just happen? Oh my God, I am the worst journalist ever. So uh, I blew it. I mean, we didn't, you know, it was just this uh, agonizing thing. And so I, I've asked these, this is part of my penance is that I've asked these guys to come tell me uh, what, what I did wrong and what, uh, what we can all do better. Um, first and foremost, I'll start, I'll start at the end, Don. I feel like we prepared for this interview, uh, you know, how important is preparation? As you, when you, you're, and, and for the record, we're talking about people who are voluntarily talking. We're not talking about people who are like chained to a floor, right? We don't get to chain people to floors, right? So we're talking- As far as you know. As far, like, I don't get to chain people to floors. Um, so we're talking to, to Barry and Don about people who are, who at any minute can just say, I'm done talking to you, I'm out of here. Um, so how, key, how important is preparation, Don, when you, when you set out? And what kind of things are you doing to prepare for an interview? I think Barry and I will agree on this, that before you set out to interview anybody in whatever capacity it is, that preparation is the number one key. And it's not just knowing the subject matter that you're going to ask about. So if you're asking about some kind of a fraudulent money transaction or some other nefarious scheme, that's great. You need to know all of the facts about that, that circumstance. But you also really need to understand the person that you're going to interview. As much time as you can spend, do they have family? What's important to them? Where do they go to school? Where do they go to church? What's the neighborhood? What's the situation? All of those things, in all likelihood, will play a role in that interview. And you may not realize it up front, but spending time doing your homework, to the extent that you, you can. Sometimes you're in a circumstance where you've got minutes or hours to go out and do a key interview, and you have to just do the best with what you've got. But when you have the luxury of time, there is no substitute for preparation. And, and Barry, do you, uh, and obviously if you want to add to that, jump in, but do you script your interviews? Do you make a list of here are the questions I want to ask in, the, in this order? And do you, do you game plan like I'm going to ask it this way? And, and do, you, do you follow a script in your, in your interviews? Um, the only thing I would like to add, uh, add to Don is that a great deal of my work has been international. It's been abroad. So what's so important to me with regards to knowing the, the background of someone is understanding also the culture. I think a lot of times we make the mistake of that everybody's the same. And I say people are more alike than different, but it's the differences that will kill you. So what I mean by that is not just understanding the family, et cetera, but also the culture that you're dealing with. And that means everything from norms, mores, traditions, values, rhetoric, logic. Everything that's in that person's head, you want to have a good idea of how that person's going to react to you. So you have to take the time, and that's something that we don't really do a lot of, take the time and prepare because your preparation is going to determine how successful you become. And since this is a, a venue of talking about liars, don't ever forget that that person you're interviewing may also be in a position where he will be practicing deception, or what I call countermeasures. So you have to be aware of that everybody you are interviewing is not necessarily going to come across and being honest with everything he or she will say. So you have to be prepared for that. Um, with, with regards to uh, scripting. the scripting is... I don't believe in scripting. Uh, I never have. Um, I believe in knowledge, and that means knowing a little bit about a lot. 
So I don't come in the room with a script. I come in the room with an idea, what I call talking points. I sort of have a roadmap of knowing where I want to go, but I don't believe in scripting it. Um, I believe in, in just like in theater in the sense that, you know, you, you, you're sort of um, being a, a stand-up, I don't want to say comedian, but stand-up provocations in the sense that you want to be able to walk into a room and establish what I call that relationship or that trust and what some of you may call rapport. So you've got to be able to sort of put all that together and, and hoping that you have a dialogue. That means two people are talking, not one person. That's a monologue. So you want to have that, that, that ability to have a conversation. And, and one other thing, Matt, about scripting. I've seen, I've been in interviews with, you know, where there are multiple interviewers and somebody has a script. And you can see that somebody is trying to go in a direction you want them to go, and they may be going slowly, and all of a sudden out of left field comes the scripted question that just shoots the wheels off the interview. So I think it's really important to be flexible and, and take what the person's giving you and build questions around the content. But, I mean, you're, you're taking notes in these interviews as we're taking notes. One of the hard parts is somebody's telling you something and you're, you're trying to get it right, right? And then you're also trying to process the question and then also sort of pro, I mean, process the answer and then form your next question. I think a lot of times it can be easy to just go to the next question, especially since it buys you a little extra time to do the notes. Uh, I mean, how do you keep from just sort of getting caught up in, if not a script, at least like your plan? I, one thing I do is, uh, granted, notes are important. So whether you re, you're using a recorder, which is great if you can use a recorder, that's always important. But I would say 80% of the work that I've done is, is being a single interviewer, which means I'm doing it all. I, I'm, I'm sort of orchestrating this theater, I'm orchestrating this conversation, and I also have to take the notes and eventually have to do a report. But one of the things that I do believe in, I don't believe in taking so much time and taking notes and not paying attention to the person I'm talking to. So what that means is that there's going to have to be going back over the story, because what I'm there is to learn the person's story. I tell a person that I'm going to tell a story, so I become you. I'm the journalist, and in some ways, I shouldn't say this, but I've uh, used my background as a journalist I didn't say that here, did I? No. But the <laughs> idea is that I come in telling somebody I want to tell them a, I want to tell their story. So that means I have to be listening and what we call effective, active listener. So I have to know what the person is saying first before I record. Because as a deceiver, I'm noticing what you're writing down. And that tells me what becomes very important to you. So I may orchestrate my story based on what I think is significant to you. So you have to be aware of that if you are the interviewer, me looking at you. So the idea is that you have to be very, very, very careful uh, with notes, although you may want to come back and paraphrase something to someone to be able to record the accurate information. So what may be an hour-long conversation may turn into a two-hour-long conversation because I've got to prove to you in establishing trust that I'm, I'm sort of we're one. I want to tell your story, so I'm going to be listening to you, and I want you to buy into the fact that I'm paying attention. Then I may come back and say, do you mind? if I take some notes now and go back over the story again. So that's a sort of a polite way of doing it. And, and you're saying that, that people who are, trying to, who are trying to lie to you in an interview are going to pick up on what you're writing down and, and, and steer you in directions based on what you seem to be interested in writing. If they, if they are, in essence, a true deceiver, someone that's actually prepared to lie, they should be. They should be. If not, they're not a good liar. In this second clip, 
the panelists talk about what to do or not do during the interview itself. Um, you know, one of the things we think, and this is very, this is TV, TV intelligence gathering, that, you know, I can look at you and he looked up to the left and I know he was lying. Um, and, you know, we were talking about this over lunch and, and Don, you said you don't, you don't buy that. And I was a little surprised because uh, you wrote a book uh, about sort of deception analysis. And it doesn't sound like you entirely buy that either, this idea that there, you know, you just, certain things are definite indicators of lying. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, there is art and science in this whole craft of detecting deception. There is obviously some, some, some science because we're looking at human beings. And, of course, a great deal of getting information from people is obviously an art form sometimes. Um, what you were talking about, neuro-linguistic programming, that is not necessarily discerned deception. That's a wholly different reason why that was taught years ago, which is not taught today. But I do believe that there is some science in, as, as far as detecting it, because there are obviously things that people do when they're under stress. And stress doesn't indicate necessarily that I'm lying, but it's a clue that something is wrong. Now, what you have to determine what that is. So you, regardless of whether it's verbal, nonverbal, physiological, people will do things when they are under pressure. And I always say you look for those abnormalities. Everyone in this room has a norm. You have a certain way that you behave. I don't know if we have any poker players in here, but if you choose to play with me afterwards, I welcome that, especially I need a little <laughs> cash before I go home. Um, but the idea is that everybody has a tell. Everybody has something that's off-center sometimes. So the idea is that's what I look for. I look for that in a conversation. And I start out with a very general conversation to win your confidence in me, whatever that may be. And then from there, we get down to the nitty-gritty. And I want to see if there are any changes. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. There's no perfect world here. But you have to be looking for something. So you have to be aware of what those tells are. So the next time you play your poker game, and if you want to win or if you like losing money, that's fine too. But the idea is start looking at the behaviors of people. How do people behave? How do they behave when they're under stress? How do they behave when nothing is unusual and we're just having that dialogue and talking? So you look for the, those abnormalities. Um, Don, as far as uh, as far as rapport building goes, I mean, I know as a reporter, one of the things that's always tough is as soon as you enter the room, it's like you've you've changed the dynamics. Now there's a reporter in the room, and it just the the way people talk gets very different. They start talking much more formally, and and it seems like it can take it can take real time to just sort of un, unscramble that and try to take you know get it back to normal, as you said, your, your baseline normal. Do you, do you have any uh, any tips, Don, on on how to how to sort of get people calm and and you know I imagine an FBI agent walks into the room and and similarly the dynamic changes. How do you how do you get past that? Well, after you put your gun on the table. Then, uh, <laughs> one of the one of the things that that. I used to like to do with, with my, my partner, and, and this was kind of assuming that we're getting a cold start with someone that we didn't really know, um, you know, how they were going to react to an interview, is, is start off by something really easy. And I'm, I'm kind of a believer in props. So I like to have some props. So we used to bring photo books to show, you know, this person just say, you know, start off with some easy questions. Hey, can you, would you mind looking at some pictures and see if you recognize any of these people? Some of these people would be dead, you know, cartoon characters, whatever. It doesn't matter what's in the book because that, that's not what we were looking for. We were looking to just start rapport building, build up a little time and trust, and just start a dialogue. 
of looking at pictures, maybe looking at some other things, and then start kind of easing into the more of the subject matter that, that so, brought so us there So it doesn't feel like place. an interview? Is that the idea? So, so it feels just, like, oh, yeah. it's easy to help here? Yeah, because I think a lot of times, you know, people want to help. Yeah, I mean, in their nature, some, you know, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people want to help. And so once you start, you know, giving them an avenue to help you and then just, you know, then you start taking a little more and then you take a little more, then, you know, eventually you're going to have to get into the tough questions that brought you there. But I always found looking at photos was, was kind of a good icebreaker uh, or looking at something to, to kind of ease in. Barry, any thoughts on, on rapport building? How do you build a rapport in an overseas bathroom? I guess I'm really curious about that. <laughs> I take a whiz. Do, no. do I want to uh, know? <laughs> <laughs> um, the idea, again, is, is establishing trust. Establishing trust leads to relationship. Relas- relationship equals rapport, in a sense. And I'm, I'm, I believe in a theory called theory of mind. That is, the more that I know about a person, the better prepared I, I'm able to walk in that person's shoes. So with that said... I, my power comes from knowledge, and that is knowing a little bit about a lot of different things so that I can establish that dialogue. And I don't think, and I've been in 140 countries that I've worked in, and in those 140 countries, obviously I don't speak 140 languages, the idea is that in those countries I go into and the individuals that I'm talking to is knowing something about who they are as a person. And people really get into that. If you really get down to outside of just the questions themselves, but accept them as a human being, Good, bad, or indifferent. I don't care who they are. Good people, bad people, whatever. If you show interest in them, you'll be surprised what people will do and say to you. And if you want to put that to practice the next time you're in a bar or next time you're in a uh, United Red Carpet Lounge and you just go up to somebody and you know a little bit about a lot, it's just start a conversation. And you'll find out, and I've always found out, is that I know a little bit, not a lot, but I know a little bit about something. So all whatever 200 of people in this room, I'll guarantee you there's something about you that I could start a dialogue on. Some place you've been, some place you've eaten, some place you travel, you name it. There'll be something that I'll grab hold of and I'll work with it. And based on that, it starts that conversation. And a relationship and trust will build from that. And once I win you over on that, and I'm using a little manipulation and seduction to get you into my world, then comes the important things that I want but that's the game that's being played. Yeah, I think just to add, it's, if you've ever been on a job interview and you've got the <clears> person across the table has a resume and you might have 100 qualifications, but if it turns out you both went to the same college or, or you, know, you have the same hobby or whatever, what's, that's going to start driving the end. It's not, not the, all the great things you've done. It's what you have in common. Um, you know, I think there's probably a lot of people in the room here who say, oh, it's all well and good. You know, you can, can have an interview, uh, you know, but I work, I work in television. I got to do this on camera. I got to get somebody. Nobody's ever going to cough up the goods on camera. I mean, nobody's ever going to do the big confession on camera. Barry, you've worked a little bit with on-camera stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how do you bring, how do you people, how do you bring people's uh, resistance down when the cameras are on? Well, again, I think in establishing rapport, I think you'd be surprised. No, you maybe shouldn't be surprised. Anybody in this audience, audience shouldn't be surprised. Um, whether you're on camera or whether you're just being audioed, it really doesn't matter. People will get lost in that relationship if you're good. If you develop really that relationship and that trust in that person, one, they'll forget the cameras that are there. Two, they'll forget that they're being recorded. And three, they'll, I call, fall in love with you. And that's what I mean. I mean, even if you're a bad guy, and I've talked to a lot of bad guys just like Don, and the fact is, after a while, they forget the venue that they're in. 
And sometimes they just want to get it off of their chest, whatever it may be. And you become that sort of listener, and they want to share that with you. Now, that takes time, that takes practice, and it takes all the things that we are, we are sharing with you to be able to get that person re- relaxed enough to be able to give you more information or make a confession. Because I must admit that sometimes I'm not looking necessarily for the confession. I'm looking for the bits and pieces of information. I'm an intel collector. That means that I'm trying to get something that wasn't, aware, wasn't known by the other party. So if I go in the room and I get a piece of information based upon a story that I get that no one else has, then I'm winning. I'll walk out of that room with something that someone else didn't have. Now, now Barry's trying to, Don, Barry's trying to get his, uh, his interview subjects to fall in love with him. Um, I mean, you, you've interviewed some... Uh, <laughs> now, well, what do, you, what do you do when you're sitting, when you're sitting down, Don, across from... Uh, you know, some big shop politician or banker, and you know he thinks he's he thinks he's smarter than I mean he thinks he's smarter than us. If, he, if he's talking to me, he's definitely right. Uh, if you know he thinks he can he can manipulate us, and and he starts trying to drive the interview. Uh, how much, Don, do you sort of continue to do the seduction and the rapport building, and at what point do you push back? Yeah, I mean, I. I you bring up a good point. I mean, you you definitely don't want to get bullied. It's kind of like you know the schoolyard. Sometimes you got to punch the bully in the nose to get respect. And the way, you know, it's it's obviously as an FBI agent easier to do that when you have a, a badge and you have powers of arrest and all that. But in the context of an interview, sometimes it's just being the smartest guy in the room and having the facts. And then, you know, it may be time to say, look, I've heard you lie long enough. Here's what I know. You let you know you string a few facts together, and and whether it's in your case, you say you know this is the way. This absent some better information from you or accurate information from you, this is the way my story is going to read. Or back in the law enforcement days, this is the information that I present that I will be presenting to a jury. So you know you're a reasonable person. You make up your own mind unless you unless you've got something different you want to tell me. And if so, I'm here to hear it. And, and do you do that in a in like a in a how do you do that and not have it be in a confrontational way where you say, listen, I know the story you're telling me, but I I need you to hear the way this is going to play out in front of a jury. Or in our case, listen, this is what I'm going to write, and you know I need you to hear that and understand where the way you're going to play this is going to play for you. How do you do that in a way that's not off-putting or confrontational or you're going to have to talk to my lawyer, which is as much a killer for us as it is for you. Yeah. Well, sometimes it is a bit confrontational. Sometimes there is no other way to just, you know, you, you reach a point where friendly, friendly, and everybody, you know, holding hands and singing kumbaya is not getting you anywhere. And you can go around in circles and listen to the same stuff, and then you get fed up with it. And you just, you know, you throw the bullshit flag and say, okay, we're done. Here's what I know. But, but And sometimes that's what it takes to get somebody off dead center. You know, knowing when to do that and if to do that, that's like, you know, when did, you know, Tom Cruise ask Jack Nicholson if he ordered the code red, you know? I mean, you just, sometimes you just reach the point where you just, you, you know you've got to do it. And it comes with, I think, a little bit experience, instinct, knowing who you're dealing with. Again, you know, venue to me is also important. Where, you know, you have better chance of doing that in a, in a place that you control versus their own office. Something, you know, so it, there's, there's no 100% answer to that. What do you, anything, Barry, what do you think of that? Well, 
you know, I, I agree with Don the fact that, you know, I don't want to be bullied nor in street language, I don't want to be punked by anybody, and, and that will not happen. But the idea is that I don't want to put that person in a corner either. For me, uh, and unfortunately I don't have the gun, well, maybe I do sometimes, but I don't have the <laughs> gun and the badge to support um, confrontation. Um, so if, if I put that person in a corner, then the day may be done, and I lose that intelligence. And I don't want to lose that intelligence. So it is a case-by-case basis. It, you know, who's to say when to become confrontational and when not to? But I will become confrontational if, in fact, I have some key facts. If I know, in fact, that you're lying to me, then, yeah, I may be a little more demanding, a little more confrontational because I have some leverage. remember, Apuza began this panel by describing the worst interview of his life. And we got maybe five, ten minutes into the conversation, and he was like clearly lying. I mean, he was clearly lying to us. He was telling us a story that just, we knew wasn't true. You might also be wondering what he would have done differently. We did too. Luckily, someone in the audience asked him. I'll just keep my mouth shut. Like, I'm, I'm the guy, I'm the guy who, if... If I'm talking to somebody and they do like, you know, don't give me verbal cues or like visual cues, it like makes me deeply uncomfortable. Uh, my boss, like my boss as notorious for just sort of sitting there like, and you know, doing like five seconds of silence. And if you're like me, five seconds of silence is like torture. Like I have to fill this space with just gonna talk more. And, uh, and that's really dumb. So, uh, I mean, I, I felt like I wanted to show this guy that I knew he was lying to me, but, uh, but it was so early. Like, I didn't need to do that then. I didn't need to... I mean, I, I felt like I was trying to not be muscled, but in the end, I didn't get the information, and that's bad on me. I mean, I, I could have let him just lie a, bit, a little bit longer. And, uh, you know, and I was trying to show him, hey, look, I know, we know what we're talking about here. And that was dumb. Thanks for listening. On our next episode, we talk to Steve Fanaru and Mark Fanaru Wada of ESPN, who wrote League of Denial and have reported extensively on how NFL players' concussions can have a lifelong effect on their health. It's, I not, mean, your, it's not, I not mean, your issue I, to deal with. Yeah, you don't have to deal with I it. I understand, but well, like so in a real way. You asked me a question. I'm going to answer the question. I know, but I'm just saying, like in a real way, like he's obviously a super accomplished journalist, incredibly talented. So, you know, I just feel like, okay, you know, fine. I'm, you're older than you, but like, okay, you know. He's like, get over it. Yeah, that's sort of yeah, the way. Well, I this am. is a total that's big brother way response. Am, really. It's a very nice, supportive response. <laughs> get over I'm it. I'm kind of impatient. Yeah. Like I mentioned at the top of this episode, IRE members can download the entire Interviewing Liars panel from the link in our episode notes. And don't forget to check out the extra clips on our blog, too. You can find our episode notes, along with all of our past episodes, at ire.org slash podcast. Even better, you can keep up to date on our episodes by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Sarah Hutchins edits the podcast, and your regular host, Sean Shinneman, will be back next time. That's it for this week. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Adam Aiden. Thank you.
Radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that already. Okay. Podcast. Podcast.